I received word that my other <laughs> press that had, because they had just signed for the tethering, so they had three of my books, was actually going under as well. <laughs> so I went from having about 16, 20 books under contract to having zero books under contract within the span of two weeks. Hi, I'm Tim. This is We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit. I think one of the best ways for each of us to grow as people is by learning from each other. If you enjoy today's episode, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever app you're listening from. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Megan O'Russell. She is a professional musical theater performer and the author of several young adult book series, including Girl of Glass, The Tethering, and several others. And just before we were recording, Megan, I was saying I part of the reason I was excited to have you on the podcast is I really do have an admiration and uh, respect for people that act and perform uh, professionally because I feel like that's something that many people might dream of, but it's a dream that not many can achieve for a multitude of factors. I mean, talent, just competition, being in the right place, right time. Um, so you got that going on, but then you're also an author, and then we can talk about you're an independent author. So I'm just really intrigued by your story. So thanks so much for for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. I have to ask, and I it's probably the question that actors get all the time but like how did how did you end up like wanting to perform is this something that you were a child who kind of enjoyed being up in front of people or is this something discovered later in life i actually decided i wanted to be an actor when i was 3 uh i never changed my mind so that was nice for my parents they always knew exactly what i wanted i was taken to see Arsenic and Old Lace when I was three years old. It's a play that is not appropriate for a three-year-old in any way. <laughs> but my mom had an extra ticket and didn't want to lose the seat, so she took me anyway. And there was a character who would charge down the stairs screaming to Panama. And I was not allowed to run down the stairs, but no one was yelling at him. And he was doing that in front of hundreds of people. So I talked to the actor after the show. I actually curled up on his lap and basically held on to him for dear life and asked him how come he didn't get in trouble. And he said, well, when you're an actor, you can do things like that when you're on stage. You just can't do them at home because it's not safe. So I told my mother I wanted to be an actor so I could run down the stairs. That is, there's no better reason to be an actor than that. <laughs> and it's true. You get to do so many things on stage that would not be socially acceptable in real life. It's great. I'm also amazed that at three, you were able to even, I mean, we're all different de developmentally, but at three to kind of sit through and really um, absorb a performance like that, I feel like not many three-year-olds might be that into it. I loved it. I just, I actually stood in the aisle because I couldn't see the people over the people's heads. And I just stood there in the aisle watching the whole show. I thought it was great. It was, yeah, I loved it. <laughs> So what do you do then when you're three? Like, how do you progress? Did, does mom get you into some classes then? Or like, because I'm just thinking a three-year-old isn't necessarily capable of like 
advocating for themselves yet, maybe, unless you did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I did to a point. I was like, I want to do this. And my mother sort of said, you know, three-year-olds aren't generally in musical theater, sweetheart. And I said, well, but I want to. So I ended up taking like the little kid ballet tap classes. And I have an older sister who was also vaguely interested in theater. So she was a very well-behaved child. And my mom would sort of use her to get me in with like, well, the little one's a bit too young, but look at this super responsible older sister who will take responsibility for her. She can come be in your show, right? So when I was four, I started doing shows because my seven-year-old sister would vouch for me. (laughs) Oh, your mom knew what was up. Oh, yeah. She was. She knew how to work the system. So she got me into classes that I was too young for and into shows that I wasn't supposed to be able to audition for because she would just use my older sister as like, but she has a babysitter, so it's it's okay. <laughs> was this like local uh, theater in your local community? Yeah, I did a lot of community growing up. I didn't start performing professionally till I was about... 13, I still did a lot of community theater, but there were enough local professional companies that needed teenagers. So I started filling in the teenage roles for them. And then I ended up going to college as a dance performance major. And I have been on the professional circuit since I left college, oh, like 13 years ago, something like that. I've been on the road for a really long time. Do you still enjoy it as much today as 13 years ago? I do. I do enjoy it so much today with my writing career. For a long time, it I was so – because it is my job. It's how I make my living. And so there was always sort of like this underlying desperation of not only do I want to be in the show, but I'm going to starve to death if I don't book another show. And so it's really great. It's sort of gotten to the point where because I – I am an author. I do have all these books. I can sort of say no to things without stress anymore, which is the perfect place I want to be in. I don't I don't think I'm ever going to want to stop performing, but having the ability to say, you know what? I would rather work on my books than be in this show right now is such a liberating thing that makes me appreciate when I want to be on stage more. That's great to have that. See, I mean, you have, like you said, you've been performing and acting for for a long time. And I mean, knowing that you want to do it since three years old, that's even, even longer. Do you, I'm wondering, you know, you see when I go to see, um, I'm here in Chicago, so we have what's called Broadway in Chicago. It's a couple of theaters that it's almost, you know, it's like Broadway shows and they tour and come. Uh, when I see a show like that or, you know, a live uh, other theater performance in Chicago, I feel like those folks on stage, I mean, they kill it every time. They convince me that this is the only time they're performing this. It's for me. It's everything. But I wonder, like, are are you as confident every time doing that? Or do you still, every time you get up on stage, get a little bit of butterflies or nervousness? I I'm always curious, like, you know, how how much of that human element is still there or is it just to the point where you've done this so many times, you're pretty confident? It depends on the show. Um, My favorite shows to perform in are the ones where there's at least 
one thing that you you really have to focus on and you really have to make sure that you are on your game in order to get it right every night. If there's at least like one, not risky, but um, one section of the show that you have to be on your game to achieve, those are my favorites. There are some shows where you could do it backwards and forwards in your sleep. And that's also great because then it's it's more of a community experience at that point where you are focusing on being there on stage with your fellow actors rather than on the technical skills you need to achieve your track within the show. But there is, no matter how many times you've done the show, there is always a very human element of things that can go wrong. Um, I actually two years ago, I want to say, I was doing the national tour of Wizard of Oz. And we actually ended up at the Chicago theater for the last two weeks of our tour. So we had been on the road since October, I think, done something like 200 performances of the Wizard of Oz, which everyone knows that show. There's not a huge amount of like super difficult things in it. But even still, performance number 200, we get to the Chicago Theater and the backstage space there is actually massive. So trying to get just from one side of the stage to the other and getting your costume changes done and getting all of those things done is difficult. And then even in an easy show like The Wizard of Oz, you add the element of a dog on stage. And so even 200 performances in, we all are very much present and in the moment because we don't know what Toto's going to do. Or we don't know when one of the Lullaby League girls, her point shoe ribbons might come loose. Or we don't know if the set piece isn't going to move or if the flies won't go. So there is always that, yeah, you've done it 200 times, but it's live theater. There is always the possibility of something going wrong. And it could be as little as someone's losing a costume piece and you have to alter your blocking in order to get them back up and ready to go. Or it could be something as big as, well, Toto's having a meltdown, so I guess we don't have a dog in this scene anymore. There's, It's different every single night. And that's one of my favorite things about doing this job. You mentioned that you sometimes look for shows that kind of have a little bit of a challenge, it sounds like, so that maybe it's not uh, just a coasting show necessarily. Is that like just you enjoy kind of a little bit of variety and being challenged? Like you're looking for a little bit of, yeah, I'm really good at this, but each show I do, I want to learn a little bit more and grow as an actor. It's about growing most definitely. I think if you decide to just like sit on your haunches and coast, that's basically when your musical theater career is done. Um, but also because it it keeps it interesting and it it keeps that little feeling of butterflies in your stomach alive. Because if you do the opening number of 42nd Street a hundred times, it's considered to be a challenging number by audiences. But if you're a tap dancer, the opening number of 42nd Street is really pretty easy. Everyone learns it when they're a kid. Everyone knows it. So it's not necessarily that exciting. It's fun to be on stage. It's a great cardio workout, but there's nothing in it where you're like, I hope I get it. I'm going to get it. I can get it tonight. So having something where, you know, you are 
tearing costume pieces away while belting and, you know, kicking your face is that element of, did I get it? Did I get it? I got it. So it has that that little bit of extra jolt of excitement that keeps it interesting. I like that jolt of excitement. I'm really curious. So you are acting and making a living and, and also your husband's an actor, right? Yeah, we actually um, travel and perform together, which has given us a lot more sustainability uh, because we do perform together basically all the time. So yeah, that that is great. We were both on the Oz National Tour. We're both in a production of Kinky Boots right now. So it's it's super fun to get to to travel and perform together. I don't think I could have done two years living on a bus without him. Oh, I imagine. Did you two meet um, like performing or was it just coincidence that you both happened to perform that end up touring together? We actually met freshman orientation week of college. He was a music theater and opera major and I was a dance performance major. So we were in the same friends group and we started dating a a few months after that. So we've basically been together since we were pretty much children because we were both barely 18 when we met. So we've been together since forever and we're just lucky enough to both be specialized to the same kind of musical theater because there are several branches within it and we both specialize in the same direction so we have been very lucky to find companies that want us to perform together which is great oh yeah i mean and you you've been touring around the the country and and stuff. I mean that must be just a fun life together to not only act together but to kind of experience the different cities and different culture and all that together. Oh, for sure. We've done four stints up in Denali National Park in Alaska performing up there and we've done Oh, I've been there. It's so beautiful. It's amazing and we both love hiking, so it's such a great opportunity to go explore things that you'd never get to see otherwise because you spend five months up there. So you have so much time to actually like go deep into the park. And we've done two different national tours together. So living on a bus and just going everywhere around the country. So yeah, it's, it's great. We are both travel addicts, so it works really well. Oh my God. I'm just thinking of Denali now that I didn't. So you were performing in the park itself, like on a regular basis? Not in the park, um, because Denali National Park does have just, it's, if you combine the state and national park, I believe it's the size of the state of Massachusetts, or it might be New Hampshire, but it's huge. And there's only one road that goes into the park. And so the theater we were working at was right outside that road. And basically you're there because at night you can't go into the national park anymore. So all of the tourists need something to do. And so we were in a show that basically tells a little bit of the history of Alaska. And the my favorite part about that show was that we all played instruments. So it was very cool, tight harmonies. Getting to play instruments on stage is always fun for me. So that was a very cool experience. And you get two days off a week, so you get to go hike around a national park. It's a lot of people, it's their bucket list trip, and you just so happen to live there, which is great. Yeah, seriously. The amount of wildlife in Denali is just, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Having to call your manager and say, I'm so sorry, I'm going to be a few minutes late. There's a moose outside my door. is <laughs> always a great time. Oh, you can't beat that. So you're doing all this and I'm, 
where did the kind of bug to write come from? I mean, now you are independently publishing all these young adult series. Um, but at the beginning there, like where did the, the bug to write come about? Well, I so I had a very interesting educational path. I accidentally finished high school when I was 13. So I ended up at a community college because my parents didn't know what else to do with me. And I took how a did, children- How did you accidentally finish high school at 13? <laughs> I The school district where I was, was it's not. It's very bad. It's ranked one of the worst in New York State. There was a lot of violence issues in the schools. So my parents chose to homeschool me. We didn't under from after fifth grade. I did elementary school and then I went to homeschooling. Um, we didn't understand that the books you picked up were meant to be a school year worth of material. We thought they were all for a semester. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so we went to turn in the semester books to pick up the next set from the school district and they were like, no, she's done. That's it. You finished. Which was very shocking. So they didn't know what to do with me. So they put me in community college because there were no more books. And I was, you know, 13. They didn't really want to send me to college at that point. So I ended up there because what else are you going to do? And um, I took a children's literature course because there was nothing else for me to do. And the final project was to write a children's book. And most people were writing like ABC books. And I wrote a full middle grade novel because I was really bored backstage in King Lear because <laughs> I was Cordelia and she really is not on stage very much and it's a really long show. So I wrote a book backstage because I was bored and I did that, got an A on the project, didn't think about it again for years and years until I was really miserable and bored backstage doing another show. And this was, it was a professional show, but it was not it was a horrible experience. I was not happy with the cast. I was not happy with the show. It was bad. Um, and I needed some artistic outlet that made me hate my life a little bit less. So I started writing this story, not with the intent of being published, just with the intent of saving some shred of my sanity. And it took me probably about eight months to finish writing the full story. And I sort of sat there and looked at it and I was like, oh, that's cool. I, I did a thing. Look at this thing I did. Good for me. And then I read through it and I was like, oh, I, I, think, I think I should like publish this. And so then I started on that whole avenue of the journey, which is, you know, very different from the writing portion of being an author, but it just being a performer and being an author, it's all just storytelling. That's really all it is. It's storytelling in two different mediums. So the transition from one to the other came very naturally for me. You said that you, I mean, when you wrote that book, it was having an artistic outlet to, to hate your life a little less. What, what did you hate about your life at the time? Well, it was I was doing a production where you'll find a lot because I I work a lot in regional theaters. So, not New York, not Chicago, professional theaters, wonderful quality theaters, but in strange places. And during this particular production, they had cast a lot of 
local actors, which is sometimes an amazing thing. Some of the most talented people I know are considered local actors at their theater. But there's a difference between local actors and local actors. And it was a lot of local actors. So the show was a nightmare every night. You didn't know what you were going to get when you walked on stage. And nine times out of 10, it was not going to be good. There were dropped lines, missing costume pieces. Like it was just a nightmare where you walk into the building and you're like, but this is my job. How does no one understand that this is my, this is literally how I eat. Why is no one doing anything to make this work? And unfortunately, I was not in a position to be able to say, no, this is what we're going to do to make this work because people are paying very good money for these tickets and they deserve a good show. So there was nothing to to do but get through the contract and wait it out. And so to give myself something to do as I waited it out, I I needed something that I could be in control of and say, no, this is how this should go. And then this is going to go like this. And then this will go like this. So I got to be the director and the choreographer and the stage manager of all the characters in my book. So they all did what they were supposed to do. Oh, I see. Oh my gosh. And how did you, so you got this book now and you're like, all right, maybe I should publish this. Like, how did you even think about that process? Did you just like hop on Google and, you know, how do I publish a book or did you have connections? I didn't have any connections. I hopped on Google and basically looked at how do I submit a book? And I'm used to auditioning and submitting as an actor. So I was like, okay, well, it's just another version of that. No big deal. And there are some really great book resources that you can, I think they still publish them that you can get that have, you know, this publisher is looking for this and this publisher is looking for that. So I actually started out for the first five or six years of my publishing career, I was completely traditionally published. I had contracts with publishers. They did all of that stuff for me. The process with the first book, which is The Tethering, which is the first book in the Tethering series, um, I submitted the book and I actually got a contract very quickly, which was great. Um, (laughs) Things didn't go so smoothly with it, but the first contract did uh, come in really, really quickly. What didn't go so smoothly about it? Um, So uh, this was oh seven years ago, eight years ago, something like that. So you were still getting phone calls from publishers and having contracts snail mailed to you. So I got the call from the publisher. I was told all the terms and all of the contract stipulations. It sounded great. Between when they when I had the phone call with them and was like, yes, please send me the contract. I want to sign this. And when the contract came in the mail, the publisher shut down. Oh, boy. Yeah. So this, that wasn't great. This is your first. Yeah. I mean, so it finally happened. Now, I get the sense that, you know, from our discussion so far in, in your career that you don't easily give up or stop moving forward. So... My question is, well, most people here would probably, you know, be very frustrated um, and, and maybe consider how they're going to move forward. What, what did you end up doing? Did you right away just, okay, we're going to go find another publisher. This is going to happen. 
I mean, I won't lie. There was probably a good bottle of wine between getting the notification that they'd closed and <laughs> starting submitting again. But yeah, I jumped right back on it. I was lucky. I hadn't – one of the biggest things that is always like gut-wrenching for me is when I tell people that something's going to happen and then it falls through. So luckily, I hadn't really told anyone but the people I was living in and living with with in cast housing at the time and like my mother. So there weren't a lot of people I had to be like, the contract fell through. So that was nice at least. Um, but I started submitting and about three months later, a month, three months, something like that, within the same summer, I received another contract from a bigger company for the same book, which was great. And uh, we went through a bunch of rounds of content edits and line edits, and I got to work with a great cover artist. And about six weeks before the book came out, I found out that publisher was closing. Why did they close? <laughs> um, the initial explanation was a little dodgy, and we actually found out probably about two weeks after it closed that there was going to end up being FBI involvement because the woman who had been running the publisher didn't actually exist. Um, Wait, she, what? Yeah, someone had created a fake identity and they had been running this publishing house under an assumed name for years. And it was very successful, but it turns out that they had been embezzling basically the whole time and then towards the end just taken all the author's money and run. And there was no – like authors weren't paying anything into it, but they were – this publisher had been skimming off the top of royalties for a long time and then just took all the royalties for like the past – the last two months that they were open and disappeared. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I was lucky because my book hadn't been published yet, so – I wasn't owed any money at least, but some people lost thousands and thousands of dollars and that's their that's their income when you're an author. Yeah. Your royalties are your income and it was just gone. And what are the chances that, I mean, okay, so first publisher, yes, I got it. They mailed a contract. By the time you get it, they are closed. Pretty soon thereafter, you get a second publisher and now like I said, what are the chances? Now they close. I mean, do you just say, all right, going to keep going, find another one? Yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I mean, I imagine there's another, another bottle of wine at this point. I, I just, I had been placed in sort of like a small sort of teamwork support group with other authors who had books releasing right around the same time as me by the publisher for the purpose of... Um, sharing blog posts and figuring out like how we wanted to do different things. And so I was in contact with them. And one of the women in that group had a contact with another publisher and she was like, you know, they're taking my book. You should get in contact with them, see if they'd want to take your book as well. So I did that. So probably about a week after that publisher closed, I ended up with a new publisher <laughs> who I actually made it through getting book one and two in the Tethering series released this time before they closed down. So at least the books were out. That was an improvement. Um, but yeah, they they shut down about a year and a half after I signed a contract with them. 
So that was not ideal. <laughs> oh, I just can't imagine. You know, this is the definition of getting knocked down and getting back up again and moving forward. I mean, you know, I don't know, you know, what your view was at the time, but I think a lot of times when things like this happen, especially for me, you start to expect what you've been experiencing. You know, it almost, not not cynicism, but I guess to some extent, being jaded almost. And so I just wonder, you know, now by the time you got to that third one, were you starting in the back of your mind be like, okay, this might happen, but twice before it hasn't, maybe it won't? Or I mean, did you just kind of have that that positivity and hope that this could be the one? I I sort of had a feeling that this was going to become a recurring theme in my life. Like I am the death kiss for small presses. Great. Good to know what oh, my, no. my niche is. That's not is. a good feeling. <laughs> and so I, I came up with the brilliant idea of, well, I've always worked with one publisher, so I should hedge my bets and work with more than one publisher. If I have two publishers, clearly, even if they both shut down, it'll be staggered, so I'll always have books out there. So I wrote another series and I had I ended up with having the Chronicles of Maggie Trent and the Tales of Bri- the Tale of Brian Adams, which are two different series from the Tethering with one publisher and having my Dystopian Girl of Glass series with another publisher. And so in my head, it was like a safety net of I'm probably going to lose one of these presses, but even if I lose both, it won't happen at the same time. So I'll have time to like regroup. And it was in December 2018, I received an email from one of those publishers, which was a very good email. Not all small businesses are meant to stay open, especially in publishing. It's such a tough industry. And the email basically said, you know, we've tried really hard, but this is just not a financially viable business model. We're going to return all your rights to you. Let us know what we can do to help. We're really sorry this didn't work out which is about the most honorable way to shutter a publisher. Like, yeah, it's it wasn't working out financially. You can't invest any more money in this. Sure. Talk to my agent. I have a literary agent. And he basically said that because the first two books in that series had been published, that series was tainted and was not likely to get pre- picked up by another press. So he said you can – shelve it or you can publish it yourself, but I don't think it's worth submitting. How did you feel when when he says that? I mean, you've put, a, I imagine, a lot of work, a lot of creativity, a lot of logistics behind the scenes to make this happen. And now he's basically saying they're dead. You can never bring this back to life with a traditional publisher. I That... It was almost a relief at that point, to be honest, because I was so burnt out with doing all this work and then having everything wiped clean as soon as the press – well, not wiped clean, obviously, because the book is tainted, but having all of the work that I had done just getting wiped out. So it was one of those, well, this series is dead, so I I can't do any more damage to it. It's already a corpse. I might as well publish it myself. What's the worst that's going to happen? 
there, it can't get any worse than this. So it sort of gave me permission to start thinking in that direction. Unfortunately, about a week, 10 days later, I received word that my other <laughs> press that had, because they had just signed for the tethering, so they had three of my books, um, was actually going under as well. <laughs> So I went from having about 16, 20 books under contract to having zero books under contract within the span of two weeks. So that was I, pretty overwhelming. I can imagine. I mean, I'm, I'm taking notes here and now I'm up to five publishers have closed. <laughs> yeah, but- I am the kiss of death. It's actually official. It's a running joke now that I am never again submitting to a small press because I'm just going to kill it. I'm in six different author support groups for people who have lost their publishers and all of them are like, oh, yep, Megan's in this one too because it. I am the kiss of death. It's me. You you give me a contract, your small press is going down. So I'm, I'm only submitting to like large publishers these days because the small ones are just doomed. They're doomed. I, I could just see you're doing all sorts of due diligence <laughs> on the companies, like making sure they're financially stable and I'm not going to... Send them in the wrong direction. <laughs> what percentage are you uh, investing in your authors? Yeah, and <laughs> and I it, and the funny thing is, like, it had nothing to do with my personal books. Like, they never put enough money into anything I was doing that I was breaking the bank. I I don't know. I I'm just like the rotting apple that just like ruins the rest of the barrel. I guess I don't know, but it it was kind of a horrible feeling to go from, well, I know what my writing schedule is between now and like 2024. I have all of my books lined up. I know exactly what I'm releasing when to you have no contracts, no schedule, no editor, no cover designer, like, sorry, you're on your own. And at that point, all four series were as tainted as Girl of Glass was considered. So there was there was really nothing I could do. I had four dead series on my hands in the span of two weeks. Oh, and you mentioned the author support group. You're, you were part of a couple of those. That, that makes me wonder, like throughout this sequence of events of the publisher's closing, of starting to realize you're going to have to, or that the only option is to independently publish, was there like someone you turned to throughout this? Are you just navigating this alone? Um, I, I just feel like that's, especially since so much of it is you're learning about this for the first time, that's got to be frustrating um, if you're if you're navigating it alone. There, a lot of it was trial and error. Um, a lot of it was reaching out to other people in the community, some authors who had been through it before and were going to resubmit some authors who had been indie published from the beginning. Honestly, and this is really sad, there, I would say probably about 80% of the authors who were in each of those publishers when they were shut down have not republished any of the books that were with those publishers or moved on to anything else. A lot of them, it just breaks their spirit. They don't want to do it anymore. They don't have the time to commit to rebuilding from nothing. So 
a lot of them in those groups, it's more moral support than business support, I would say. Um, Primarily the people who I reached out to were actually just fellow authors that I knew from random Facebook publicity groups or marketing groups or just weird little promos we'd done together were the main resource. And that's one of the things that I love about the author community so much that is so different from the theater community is you you ask a question in an author group on Facebook, let's say, you know, I I think I need help with my blurb. I'm not sure why this book isn't selling. And you will get maybe a couple catty responses, but 90% of the responses will either be supportive or useful. And they are lovingly giving you information without expecting anything in return. And you would never get that in the theatrical community. You could not walk into a room of actors and be like, I'm not booking any work. Does someone want to look at my rep book and tell me what I'm doing wrong? And they'd be like, no, I'm out for the same part as you. I'm not going to help you book it over me. Why would I do that? So it's, it's great that there is such a large space for authors that there isn't the need to intrinsically compete with one another. That is great. You you mentioned that in these groups, kind of the moral support groups for these authors, that a lot of them, the experience broke their spirit. How come your spirit wasn't broken? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with being in theater. You if you don't have a thick skin, you're you're not going to survive ballet class, let alone an audition season. You, in the most ideal circumstance in theater, you've been through the classes, you've booked the gig, you're in the rehearsal space. If you're in the rehearsal space, the director is still going to look at you in front of everyone and say, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. Do it again. No, you're doing this wrong. Do it again. Do it again. And there is no, let me have like a nice professional meeting with you off to the side. No, you're going to be told you're wrong in front of all of your peers on a daily basis. That's just how theater goes. And, you know, in the dance world, it's that's great, but you're five pounds too heavy. That's great, but you need to kick higher. I don't even know why you're here if you can't do this. Why aren't you doing that? So it's very abrasive and it's very demanding and that often comes off in a very demeaning manner so it's one of those you just have to say like okay well that hurt a lot guess I'll be back at 9 a.m tomorrow and you just go about your business because that's just the way the theatrical industry is and so getting emails from people being like hey we're shutting down sorry we're unpublishing you know the last seven years of your work at least when you get an email like that, it's an email. So you get to like sit on your couch with ice cream and privacy for a while as you deal with it. So that's kind of nice. You get to, you know, have a nervous breakdown where no one can see you. That is a plus. (laughs) It really is. Like getting to like hear horrible things while not in front of 20 other people is way nicer, actually. It's kind of a relief. So then you're going to, I'm just thinking, so you're at the point now, the last publishers have closed and you realize you have these series that you've been advised can probably not go to a traditional publisher. So like this independent publishing route, 
how do you even get started with that? I mean, I guess what I'm thinking is, were you okay closing the door on traditional publishing? Now, granted, I guess you didn't necessarily have the best experience, but I mean, I'm just, the way I'm envisioning this is you had a traditional infrastructure that you were going to follow here that was set up for publishing books. It's not going to work. And now you kind of have to shut the door on that and open the door on this whole new responsibility to yourself of, I got to do all this myself. I just got to literally do it myself and figure out what that means. And I'm now responsible. I'm not going to have, you know, these publishers to back me up. Um, that just seems like a, not a light decision. It it wasn't a light decision. It was definitely a bit overwhelming. But at the same time, and why I'm kind of, as much as it would have been great to, you know, have my purse publisher stay open and have a nice smooth route through my publishing career, I am not upset about the the years I spent in traditional publishing because it was basically a master's degree in doing everything but uploading my own files. I had to talk to the cover artist. I had to fight when I didn't like the cover that I was given. I worked with editors. I worked with bloggers. I worked with social media managers. I did all those things. So by the time it came to, okay, well, now I have these 12 books that I need to publish within the next 12 months if I want to have any chance of revitalizing these series, the biggest questions weren't, well, how does editing work? How does a blurb work? Where do I get a cover from? The biggest questions were, what schedule do I release on? What platforms do I use to upload my books on? And there were a few awesome authors who I reached out to and was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, how how fast am I supposed to release these? Do I do one from each series? And so it was a matter of like a few emails sent back and forth of this is probably the publishing schedule you want to stick to. Don't use this platform. Use this platform. Also, join this Facebook group. You'll get more information here. And then just doing a lot of research. And there are so many awesome resources for indie authors. There are podcasts. There are courses. There are newsletters, websites, just about any information you want about indie publishing, you can get in four or five different formats, depending on how you like to consume your information. So at that point, it was just a matter of what are the technical details that I need to get through getting the first series up and then what experiments do I need to run with the rest of the series so I can figure out what the best plan is moving forward? I get the feeling that looking back, maybe this was all like meant to be, like maybe this was where you were supposed to end up doing this independently. Do you feel that way? I do. And I, I haven't completely shut the door forever on traditional publishing. I'm definitely not doing small presses again because I don't want to doom anybody else. But I do, my agent still has books. Eventually when I have time, I'll send more books for him to submit. So there, there is that it would be lovely to, you know, end up with Scholastic or something somewhere down the line. For now, that's not a thing. I'm too busy. I can't create another manuscript to submit. But as far as 
those publishers falling through, it was absolutely the best possible scenario. One of the first authors that I reached out to when I was like, I don't, I don't know, I like have manuscript, will publish, no idea how to get from one to the other. Um, I was talking to her and I was like, I think, I think I have to do all these books on my own. And she was like, well, welcome. Welcome to indie publishing. You're going to be addicted and you're never going to want to come back because <laughs> you are finally in control of your own destiny. You get to make all these decisions. You get to see money go directly into your bank account rather than waiting two years and hoping nobody, you know, skims it all off the top and there's nothing left. So, and she was so right. I, it is overwhelming. It is a lot of work and, you know, being a full-time performer that, that can be a lot, but getting to say, this is the book that I'm releasing and this is the cover I want to use. This is the platform I want to use. Getting to do all those things is totally worth the extra hours of labor that I have to put in. Where do you find the drive? Um, I, I'm thinking, you know, I love how you described where you found the thick skin f for the time you ended up, by the time you got to publishing and, and um, you know, kind of all of those sequence of events happening, you had a thick skin from your, your acting career and your performing career um, where do you find the drive to just keep getting back up each time? Is it, is it that same thick skin from, from acting and from that experience or is it some other experience in your life that kind of just taught you, you know, keep moving forward? I think mostly I'm just obstinate. <laughs> I just, I, I'm just a very obstinate person. Like, I that's great that you're going to tell me no that doesn't mean I'm going to accept it. But I so weirdly I think the first time that I remember being kicked down that hard I was actually a boy scout growing up which is strange but because there are so many rules for Girl Scouts, like you have to have a permission slip to like leave your meeting place. It's it's pretty lame. You can't go anywhere without getting like a committee to approve it. But in Boy Scouts, as long as you don't cross state lines, they they don't care if you have paperwork or not, whatever. They're super chill about it. And so as soon as I was 13, I transferred from Girl Scouts to Boy Scouts, the same group of girls basically, but we all considered ourselves, we were registered as Boy Scouts so that we could go hiking without paperwork was basically the idea of it. And we would do the giant scouting camperies. And the the level of sort of loathing that we would receive because we were a pack of female Boy Scouts who quite frequently won basically every competition that you walk in and you realize like, okay, you're going to you're gonna do everything you can to make me lose. That doesn't mean I'm going to lose. That just means that I'm going to be hearing a lot of negative noise while I win. And so experiencing that in such a, a large grouping, because there would be thousands and thousands and thousands of scouts of these things, and having that experience that young and having – 
other girls in the troop there with me being like, yep, this is how it is every year and we win every year. Now, dust yourself off, here we go, was a very formative experience of just because you tell me something won't work doesn't mean I have to accept what you're telling me. I love that. I, I share that. And, uh, you know, that, that, that same mentality of, okay, well, you told me no, but I'm, I'm going to find a way. Have there ever been situations, because I think about myself, sometimes there's still a, a situation might present itself that I still can't get around, you know, like for whatever reason, maybe I don't have enough influence on it. Maybe it's beyond my control. Maybe it's, you know, there's just something that no matter my best intentions and my drive, I can't get around it. Have have you ever run into that? Oh, absolutely. And I think in, in every situation, be it positive, negative, something in between, there comes a point where you you have to look at the time, the labor, the emotional commitment, the toll it's going to take on everything else you're trying to do with your life and think, is this worth the sacrifice? Is this worth being stuck in a bad situation if you're not going to be able to turn it around? Is it worth giving up the effort that you've already put into it if you think walking away would be the best idea. And there are very few situations in this life where you're actually pot committed. Like in poker, some people will just – they put in like half their chips on a bet and then they're like, well, I'm pot committed now. Got to see this through. And you keep putting cards down and their odds are getting worse and worse and they're still putting more and more chips in because they're convinced that they're pot committed. There is really rarely any such thing as being pot committed in life. It doesn't matter if you feel like you've put everything into this. If you have one chip left in your hand, you can still walk away. You can still find somewhere else to make yourself happy, to make yourself successful, whether it's a career, a relationship, a publishing contract, a show contract, whatever it is. You can take your one tiny five cent chip and walk away. You still have that five cents. You are not pot committed. You can get out. And I think that that is one of the reasons that I have been so durable because as much as I've stuck with performing when it's hard and I've stuck with publishing even when everything's shut down, there are a lot of things that I have taken my five cent chip and been like, okay, well, this is not going to work out. This is not where I want to be. And I'm going to go. Thank you so much for your time and energy. And you just have to take your five cents and find somewhere else to be. I love that analogy. I've never heard it phrased that way, but I love that so much. I had to write that down. Pot committed in the, the chip. I love that. Yeah. I, all it takes is a chip in a chair. If you have a five cent chip and a seat at that table, you still have a shot at winning. May not be a good shot, but you're still in it. So don't forget, like you can you can make it work. Absolutely. Megan, this is thank you so much for for taking the time today. This has been such a great conversation. I have two pages of notes here. And <laughs> I, I I love that because that means I've learned so much and I'm so excited to share with others and, and hopefully they can learn so much. But I, you know, you got 
so much going on. So I just wanted to say, you know, and express the gratitude. Thank you for for taking the time to, to do this. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, rate and review us, and share this episode with a friend. Thanks.